Hi, welcome to the Quipster Film Review Podcast. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, and you can read almost 4,000 of my written work there at that website. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net is where to go. Today I'm going to be looking at a film that's getting quite a lot of great critical buzz out there, as well as a lot of fan fervor for people who like the property, as well as the MCU movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe of Films. The one I'm talking about here is called Spider-Man Homecoming. It's an action sci-fi comedy. It's PG-13 rated for sci-fi action violence, some language, brief suggestive comments, and it runs 2 hours and 13 minutes. Tom Holland is the star here as Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Michael Keaton, the main baddie. Robert Downey Jr. here as Iron Man. Jacob Batalon, Laura Harrier, Marissa Tomei as Aunt May. John Favreau as Happy Hogan. Zendaya as MJ. Donald Glover, Tony Revolori, Bokeem Woodbine are also in this film. The director is John Watts, and the screenplay is credited to the quite sizable list of screenwriters, Jonathan Goldstein, John Francis Daly, John Watts himself, Christopher Ford, Chris McKenna, and Eric Summers. Now, Spider-Man Homecoming here, of course, if you know your Spider-Man films, you know this is the third time in this young century that Marvel's flagship superhero is being attempted here on the big screen. And while it's understandable that Sony, who currently have the rights to do the film versions of Spider-Man, wouldn't let a sure-shot property like Spider-Man go to waste, they definitely run the risk here of diminishing results from an audience that has largely grown fatigued and investing their time and money into a Spider-Man franchise that's not going to get scrapped after two or three films, especially when the prior two attempts ended more with a whimper than a bang. Now, generally speaking, Spider-Man Homecoming gets a few things right, including sidestepping having to retread the well-known origin of how Peter Parker became the costume superhero for the umpteenth time. We find Peter Parker here as an awkward teenager. He has a crush on a schoolmate named Liz, and he's also brushing up on his knowledge on a school team who's vying for national academic competition. He also happens to have an internship with a part-time father figure in Tony Stark, who is using this opportunity to mentor the lad on the ways to use his technologically advanced costume that's enhanced like a Swiss Army knife by an AI control device that Peter dubs Karen, all that tech courtesy of Stark Industries, of course, and that tech he uses to thwart criminals around the city, hoping that doing so will help him become an Avenger under Tony Stark's tutelage. Now, Peter Parker gets more than his match when the Vulture, a spurned blue-collar Joe who has turned a high-tech criminal named Adrian Toomes comes on the scene. He's confiscated alien technology from the Chitari, as seen in Marvel's The Avengers way back when, in order to manufacture and sell ultra-powerful weapons on the black market, even to bad guys. Now, the homecoming of the title refers to Peter Parker and his school existence, of course, but more specifically, the fact that the big homecoming dance is coming. However, there is a double meaning in that Spider-Man's character is coming home here to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, despite still existing under the Sony banner, where he will, of course, rub shoulders with most of the non-mutant heroes that we've come to know and love for decades in print form and on the silver screen in the MCU that's currently owned by Disney. After debuting briefly to rave reviews in... Captain America Civil War, Tom Holland is still an excellent choice for Peter Parker. He provides the right mix of intelligence, a geekiness, certain awkwardness, some earnestness, and that lithe physicality that's necessary to play Spider-Man. He's a great choice, especially 
as he's the most youthful in appearance and demeanor of the actors who've played the part in recent years, and he has lots more upside for growth in future adventures down the road. Marissa Tomei as Aunt May is definitely a departure for that character, especially in that she's supposed to be sexy, which is something that no other version of Aunt May has been close to being deemed as since her inception in Marvel Comics. She's not terribly important in the underdeveloped role other than to give Peter someone to bounce off of at home. And the Aunt May character is probably racked with even less guilt about the murder of her beloved husband than Peter, assuming that he is murdered. I wasn't able to fully glean the impetus for Peter to become Spider-Man, as has always been tradition. In fact, if Uncle Ben did die, I don't think it's anything that seems to hang over either of them very much, as evidenced by this film. There is some nice comic relief here, plenty of it actually, mostly provided by giving Peter a best friend named Ned, who's really there not only for Peter to bounce even more scientific ideas off of, but to continue to drum up some laughs at their misadventures. Tony Revolori seems to be channeling a little bit of John Bender from The Breakfast Club in his portrayal of Peter's frenemy Flash. In fact, that's just one of several nods to the works of John Hughes that you'll find obviously strewn about within John Watts' film here. Peter's crush Liz is about on par with other teen rom-coms in terms of development, which is not that much, but in the world of Peter Parker, it feels as light in its weight as the rest of this film. It's meaningful only in so much as Peter has feelings, but if they aren't reciprocated, it doesn't really seem ready to rock his world particularly. And, you know, as we were building up to this film, much was made of Zendaya playing someone named MJ in the role. That's usually white and redhead, but after you see this film, you'll realize that they may share the same initials, but this seems to be a different character altogether. So maybe that will keep some of the criticism at bay. I don't know. Michael Keaton, who ironically played a character known for being in a superhero film as Birdman, is a Birdman literally as the Vulture, but he kind of acts as Michael Keaton, the one we've come to know and love over the years, pretty much a typical portrayal by him. And that's usually fine in most movies, though I do think that the Vulture himself is not really a particularly memorable villain, especially as Michael Keaton, as the actor, is just a CG creation once he's in his costume. And he's battling another CG creation in Spider-Man, so it just looks like you're watching a video game at some point. The worst aspect, I think, comes from yet again a Spider-Man villain who happens to know Peter Parker in another capacity in real life. Something that has also, at least for me, strained credibility in just about every incarnation of, of Spider-Man's films to date. And the thing that I cannot stand is the fact that every villain seems to have a connection with both Peter Parker and Spider-Man in different ways. And for a film that offers a fresh approach, I do think that it's a bit disappointing that the creators of this film still adhere to that basic formula when it comes time for the superhero and supervillain build-up and showdown. Now, Homecoming is, as I mentioned, directed by John Watts. He was the helmer of small-budget indie films like Cop Car and Clown, and neither of those are particularly notable films, but they did show some flair for Watts' ability to draw out good performances, particularly from younger casts. And while Watts does keep the emphasis on keeping things very light, very whimsical, the film still feels more like watching three episodes of a TV show for teens more so than this big epic film, albeit this does have a better cast and a lot more money for effects than television typically affords, though I do still personally feel that the visual effects in Spider-Man Homecoming are not as well developed, not even close, as those in the regular MCU endeavors. And what's missing for most of the film here is a sense of dramatic weight. 
Without the emotional stakes that made the first two Sam Raimi films in his series stand out for its era, it's just not here that much. Even Gone is the weight that keeps Peter Parker motivated to battle criminals as Spider-Man, like I mentioned. He seems more interested in becoming an Avenger than an Avenger of his beloved uncle's murder. As I mentioned, also six credited screenwriters tinker with this Overall script, there's occasional nods to classic Spider-Man story arcs, such as a scene that echoes the events found in The Amazing Spider-Man number 33 way back in the day, a classic Marvel comic in which our hero is trapped under tons of rubble and has to find the inner strength to get him out of the situation that his outer strength seems unable to manage on its own. Of course, like most aspects of Spider-Man Homecoming, even Peter's inner resolve during the scene remains surface level as this massive weight of twisted metal upon him seems more like momentary obstacle instead of the angst-fueled defining moment for a hero to have that epiphany that would govern him the rest of his days as it had been in the print counterpart. And the same lack of true tension also carries into the action sequences of Spider-Man Homecoming. With such fateful calamities as an airliner that's gone amok or a ferry that's literally torn asunder, those lack a requisite feeling of peril that surely should make Spidey's heroic deeds feel, well, truly heroic. There's even a sequence here in which the Washington Monument is on the verge of being destroyed, and that still feels small and without a lot of dramatic tension, or a great narrative impact. Deus Ex Machina, literally Ex Machina moments involving Iron Man feel perfunctory, merely there to persistently reestablish the fact that Spider-Man now shares the same universe as his MCU counterparts under the Disney umbrella, and while the showdown between Peter Parker and Adrian Toomes does carry some interest, even if it's wholly contrived, the battle between Spider-Man and the Vulture is about as exciting as watching cutscenes of a video game that's being played by a stranger. In other words, the film could go a long way toward engaging us into this action with more than just soundtrack selections, character banter and interactions, and allusions to other Marvel properties that we already know and love. And while I realize I'm not as high on Spider-Man Homecoming as many of my critical brethren, there's still an aspect that I do enjoy about this film being a lifelong Spider-Man fanboy. I love Spider-Man. He's my favorite character of all of comicdom. With that in mind, you know, I still liked a lot of what I saw here, even though from an objective standpoint, I don't think that it's as good as the first Spider-Man or Spider-Man 2 from Sam Raimi. But there's still enough here to state that while finding the filmmaking here largely disappointing, I do also find enough entertainment value within the film to still hold my interest through the two hour and 15 minute runtime. And the cast is at least promising enough to think that there might be hope for future entries that could probably work wonders with the right script and direction. At least it was never overtly bad in the way that Spider-Man 3 or many portions of the Mark Webb Amazing Spider-Man series could be on occasion. No, there aren't the major lows in Spider-Man Homecoming the way they, they were in those previous three Spider-Man outings, but neither are there many highs to be had within its story as presented either. And that leaves this film about as delightful to admire in its construction as a spider's web, but it's also just as weightless as that web. And that leaves Spider-Man Homecoming feeling like just a momentary diversion in superhero cinema instead of something to merit writing home about. 
Hopefully the second film in this franchise will be able to keep its substantial assets and escape the traps that hold this one from freely swinging to great heights. I'm giving Spider-Man Homecoming. This is a real borderline call. Probably one, one that I could go back or forth, back and forth with. And as those people who've listened to my podcasts in previous episodes will know, when I have a borderline call, I usually give the lower of the two grades on a first time watch. So this could go left or right. The problem here is that it's between a two and a half and a three star movie for me. And two and a half stars is a non-recommendation and three stars is a recommendation. So the fact that I'm going to the two and a half star non-recommendation is probably going to ruffle a lot of fans of the Vulture and Spider-Man, of course, himself. This really is, I guess, a disappointment for me. Although I didn't have high expectations going in, but I do see that it has 92% or 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. So I'm in the minority here. Take that for what it's worth. If you're a Spider-Man fan, like I said, I I do find enough here to keep my interest, just not enough here to really be wholehearted in my objective recommendation. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that I didn't rankle you too much, especially for you Spider-Man fans. But if you do have your own opinions on this, you can write to me. You can go to my website, quipster.net, find my contact information, as well as links to my Twitter feed and Facebook page. That's Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Don't forget, you can also find more of my podcasting work at the In Session Film Podcast. I'm the co-host of the extra film segments of that show, so check those out as well. InSessionFilm.com for more details. And until next time, please enjoy your time anytime you get to go to the movies. And if you see Spider-Man Homecoming, I do hope that you actually had a good time, just like most of the rest of the people that seem to be enjoying this a little bit more than I did. 